On the evening of June 18, 1962, the path-breaking force of nature behind the New York Shakespeare Festival finally, as always, got what he wanted. Joseph Papp has come to the end of a long road. He wanted a home for the presentation of Shakespeare plays. That's the president of the New York City Council, Newbold Morris, speaking at the opening of the Delacorte Theater in Central Park. And here it is, Joe. Make yourself to home. Joe Papp. Eight years of scraping and fighting against poverty, against bureaucrats, against the Red Scare, to perform Shakespeare for free for the people of New York. You could say it was a dream come true for Joe Papp. But if you actually asked Joe Papp, he'd say that was wrong. Well, people say that, you know, and I've never been a dreamer. I've never really dreamed about things. I just did things on a day-to-day basis and uh, had certain things I wanted to achieve, and it's never been a dream. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. In 2009, Kenneth Turan published an epic oral history of the early years of the New York Shakespeare Festival and the public theater that he titled, Free for All, Joe Papp, the Public, and the Greatest Theater Story Ever Told. To create that book, he spent untold hours with Joe Papp and also talked with New York politicians, Broadway producers, and seemingly everyone else who helped Papp make Shakespeare in the Park a reality, including performers like James Earl Jones, George C. Scott, Meryl Streep, Kevin Kline, Colleen Dewhurst, Tommy Lee Jones, and a Staten Island car wash employee who would go on to play Romeo under the stage name of Martin Sheen. Their stories are woven together into a thrilling record of one of the 20th century's most important monuments to Shakespeare. We invited Kenneth Turan to come into the studio in 2018 to talk about what he learned, focusing mostly on Papp's early years, which are now largely lost to history. We present that interview to you again in a podcast we call This Green Plot Shall Be Our Stage. Kenneth Turan is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. I knew Pap grew up poor, but I had no idea just how poor he was before I read your book or his family. What was his childhood like? Well, it was really, really, you know, deep poverty. I mean, the kind of poverty where they would move in the middle of the night because they couldn't pay the rent. They had bare light bulbs. He remembered going to friends' apartments when he was in school and seeing lampshades, and they'd never seen them before. He talked about putting cardboard in his shoes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this was really deep, deep poverty, and I think it formed him. He never... Never, one of the people I talked to said to me once, when you fight your way out of the ghetto, you're never sure you're out. And he was talking about Joe, and I think it was very true, that sense of being poor and having a responsibility to speak to and for the other people who were poor. I think that never left him. It does mark you, and it makes his his whole career, really, his vision of bringing free Shakespeare to the masses. Definitely. Puts it in a whole different, different light. I know in your book that Pap said, uh, told you that Shakespeare opened up whole educational areas uh, for him and that he began to think about his life in larger terms. What did he mean by that? 
Well, I mean, I think there was, a, first of all, there was a woman, a woman named Eulali Spence, who was a teacher of his in high school, who really was the first person who able to really show Joe, you know, this is really the introduction to Shakespeare that took, that he remembered, that he was happy about. And he just got it. And I think he never really thought, you know, when you're poor, I think you don't really, your horizons are really limited. You think about just surviving and the fact that there are other aspects of your life that you could be thinking about, involving yourself in, enlarging. You don't go there. And I think Shakespeare showed him this other world that he could be part of. Right. It wasn't shut out to him as if you had to be entitled to, yeah. to, to get Shakespeare. And it sounds like he heard it. Like he, he heard the melody yeah, of the line. Yeah. I believe that's true. I mean, something just clicked for him and he got it. And he said, you know, I get this. And the fact that he got something like this that he come to see was part of a long tradition and part of a higher culture. But he felt at home in it. He felt, yes, this was for me. And he said to you, I think in that same conversation, that he saw theater as an important poetic and political force. Yes, I think he always felt Joe was a, I call him a boy communist. You know, Joe went to all these rallies when he was a kid. He was very politically passionate, again, because he was so poor and he didn't think it was right. And, you know, one of the things that I remember as we're talking about this, you know, his father, who was a Yiddish speaker, you know, and Joe would come back from these rallies all, you know, fired up and talk about what they were doing. And his father would look at him and say, Yesela shall garnished helfen. Joe, it's not going to help. And I think with theater, he saw a way that he could help. And that never left him. So you're saying you see this direct link from Shakespeare to uh, his vision and to his politics. Yeah, I think so, because Shakespeare is what started it all off. Well, before he started in uh, theater, though, he enlisted in the Navy and he ran entertainment there. And Bob Fosse, of all people, was in his troop. I know. I it's mean, like Zelig. I know. I mean, when he told me Bob Fosse was in his troop, I said, yeah, right, sure, Joe. You know, I'll check it out, but I mean, I'm not convinced. And it turns out, yes, I, you know, I get in touch with Bob Fosse, and he says, yes, of course, come talk to me. I remember it vividly. <laughs> they were on, like, the same ship together, you know, and it was just wild. So they put on shows. They put on shows, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then after the service, he went to the actor's lab on the GI Bill. And one of the people that you spoke to for the book, Phoebe Brand, said that perhaps Shakespeare aesthetic comes from the lab and even from that far back. I thought of him as a method acting and an actor studio guy. But we're talking now the 40s where yeah. the seeds of this training came from. What was his training as an actor? Well, the actor's lab was something, again, that believed in the political impact of theater, believed that theater had a relevance and was a way to kind of mobilize and galvanize and educate people. And it was out in Los Angeles, and Joe just you know ended up here, and uh, he checked it out, and it, he just connected to it. Sounds like he ate it up. Yeah. It's amazing in his life that he would somehow come upon things that fed him, and he recognized them immediately. It's not only that he came upon them, he said, okay, this is going to work for me. That's maybe kind of the definition of genius, right? Yeah. Every opportunity <laughs> you make. You, you he knew this was for him. Okay, so the first place that Joseph Papp then staged Shakespeare is in the Emanuel Presbyterian Church in right. the early 1950s. And he got involved with this group called the Oval Players. And he told you that he looked around at this kind of 
really crummy performance space that they had. And he kept thinking, oh, this would make a great place to do Shakespeare. So why did he think a rundown church would be great for Shakespeare? Well, I think two things. First of all, I mean, it had a space. But also, you know, it was available. Joe was always practical. I mean, I think he actually got that space once the Oval players kind of disbanded and Joe realized the space was kind of available and Joe was an opportunist. When he saw opportunities, he grabbed them and he went and he talked to the, you know, the kind of the kindly old padre who ran the church and he, uh, guy said, sure. And also he loved the idea the guy said to him, the minister said to him, well, you know, of course, you'll have to pay for heat. And with, that was the moment when Joe realized he wasn't going to have to pay rent. All he'd have to pay for <laughs> is sure heat. He didn't let on that he, yeah. he didn't offer to pay for more, that's for sure. No, but I mean, you uh, know, he had no money. And Pap also was asking him for the heavy chairs in the church. Yeah, right? they needed, he wanted better seating. And he ended up, what he and his friends, I mean, he worked at CBS at the time. He was a floor manager for TV programs. It was a very high-powered job, and uh, like a stage manager. And uh, he had friends there, and he en- enlisted them, and they would do several things. I mean, there was equipment that CBS, when the TV was booming, they would take over like theaters, and they wouldn't. There were things in there that they didn't need, and they just would store them. And they were never going to use them, and Joe would, you know, kind of liberate some of that them, stuff. Yeah. But also, he, there's this great story he tells in enormous detail about. There was a theater, I think, up in the Bronx, a movie theater that was going out of business, and right, and, and they had those movie theater chairs the that are all attached theater to chairs are all attached to. They were very heavy, and it was. I mean, he somehow got the chairs off the floor, and you know how did they could they were bolted together. They were hard to move. I mean, several. It's not just Joe. Several people remember these chairs. You know, so like <laughs> Joe is you know imagining this. This was like an enormous labor of work. But Joe found people. I mean, he had a quality that drew people to him. You have to, being a producer, being able to carry people with a vision, people to help you, people to contribute, people to work without being paid. This is a real gift. And Joe had that in spades. This is an age before Off-Broadway. And it seems, I mean, reading your book, you get this wonderful sense that Pap really created this concept of Off-Broadway. He was a key player. I mean, he wasn't alone, but he was a key player. And it's just created out of necessity. You know, people want, that's where his people came from. That's where, you know, in the movie business, people work on people's short films for free. Creative people want to work. And they need, in theater, they need a space. And there were spaces Off-Broadway and so people started to use them. And there's a, in the book, uh, Arthur Gelb talks about Brooks Atkinson, the great theater critic. And he they said he was the first person to review off-Broadway plays. You know, when they started, no one went down there. Critics thought theater was Broadway. If it's not Broadway, it doesn't exist. And Joe helped to change that. Yeah, there's something else that you get reading from the book that I guess I knew too, but... When you hear all the voices of these actors talking and what they owe to Joseph Papp, I realize that um, Papp discovered all of these actors. I mean, it starts with George C. Scott, Colleen Dewhurst, and James Earl Jones talks about it. Tell us about George C. Scott, because he was yeah. really kind of this just knockabout actor. At, yeah, he at the was. Time. I know it was funny. I mean, uh, it, again, it's a great story that when Joe tells it, he was up for a part. And George C. Scott had been just like an itinerant actor. He'd never had any great success. And there was a Shakespearean 
part that he was up for. And Joe says, you know, it was between him and another guy, you know, and Joe said, I couldn't really decide. He says, this other guy has never been heard from since. And you know, he says, you always, Joe said, you don't have to be right every time. You just need a percentage. Right. And, he owned, and it was a close call. Yeah, he, he said, said it was a close call. George C. Scott. Yeah. I really want to know who this other guy yeah, yeah. is. <laughs> I, you know, George C. Scott remembers this so vividly. I mean, he was nervous the first audition. He didn't do well. He asked if he could come again. Joe reluctantly said yes. And George C. Scott said he stayed up all night. Like he was like sleeping in, you know, someone's a friend's house in the village. And he stayed up all night with someone else who was staying in the house running lines you know, again, when I talked to him, he was decades past, but he remembered it so vividly, clearly for George C. Scott. This was a turning point in what turned out to be a spectacular career. Well, people who saw his Richard said it was like nothing else. Oh, my God. I mean, uh, when people talk, I mean, you know, I heard about a lot of projects that, uh, you know, I never got to see. And the one at the top of my list of I wish I could have seen was George C. Scott and Richard III. I mean, the best story is when you know, they, the, the Shakespeare Funeral Festival used to uh, do stuff for kids. And they had this, uh, the Heckscher Playhouse that they were performing in at the time. And it was this auditorium filled with rowdy high school kids. If you've ever been on a high school theater trip, you know what kids are like. You know, it was noise and they were rolling bottles down the aisle and they were yelling and screaming and the teachers had disappeared. And George C. Scott walked out on this little stage and everyone got quiet. You know, he was just so commanding from just the moment he walked on stage. Well, he also discovered, uh, as I said, Colleen Dewhurst. And she's really funny talking about that. Uh, Pap apparently called her and said he wanted her for Juliet. And she said something like, uh, have you seen me? (laughs) 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 Yeah, I couldn't play. I've been able to play Juliet since I was 12. (laughs) Right, maybe not even then. She's so tall. She said, you never know. You you always hear about the call that's going to change your life, and you think God knows what it's going to be. And it turned out it was this call from Joe Papp that changed her life. Right, it all followed. Yeah. Speaking of uh, Romeo and Juliet, uh, there's a great story in the book about Papp's first production in 1955. The story is that he burned through eight different Romeos before opening. (laughs) Well, I think what happened there was just not that, you know, Joe wasn't paying people anything. And, you know, actors would get, like, jobs, you know. You know I think actual jobs actual that job. pay actual money. So they would say, you know, Joe, I love what you're doing, but I'm leaving, you know. And it took, a, you know, it was just the luck of the draw, the bad luck of the draw that so many people left. And, you know, it had nothing to do with anything except economics, you know. He just couldn't afford people. And if they got other jobs, they would have to take them. Well, in addition to essentially helping to create off-Broadway theater, Joseph Papp also seemed bent on creating a new kind of uh, approach to Shakespearean performance. And a lot of people in the book talk about that. So what were the characteristics of Papp's modern school of Shakespeare acting? I mean, I guess what he was reacting against was the notion that American actors would somehow have to sound British. Why brand they us with base, with baseness, bastardy, base, base? who in the lusty stealth of nature take more composition and fierce quality than doth within a dull's tale tired bed go to the creating a whole tribe of fops. And Joe felt, well, no, you don't have to do it that way. You can just have actors acting as if they were acting in the other play. Watch it. Oh, poor girl. And I'll be revenge. What? In my sight. Bianca, get the What? Ink. Will you not suffer me? Nay, now I see she is your treasure. She must have a husband. 
I must dance barefoot on her wedding day and for your love to her lead apes in hell. Katharina. Talk not to me. At the time, it, it, it doesn't sound very revolutionary now, but at the time, apparently, this was not the way it was done, but people were very happy to, you know. Well, the actors were ecstatic. I mean, James Earl Jones talks about it. This is that this was the first chance he ever had to, to be comfortable yeah. in a Shakespeare role. Exactly. Dry up in her the organs of increase, and from her delicate body never spring a babe to honor her. If she must team, create her child of spleen, that it may live and be a thwart this nature torment to her. Let it stamp wrinkles in her brow of youth with cadent tears, flat channels in her cheeks, turn all her mother's pains and benefits to laughter and contempt, that she may feel how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child away. Oh, God, but we adore. Where comes this? But I think it was more than that, though, or it sounds like that from a lot of the people you talked to, because Pap was working with these actors who had studied method acting in the actor's studio, and someone, I can't remember who it was, but they were very funny talking about this in your book, and, and they said, in the 50s, if you didn't get into actor's studio... You bought a gun. It was as simple <laughs> as that. <laughs> there was nowhere else to go, yeah. nothing else to do. Uh, but method acting is not about being musical and rhythmical within a line. So how did Pap get around that? How did he create this kind of method Shakespeare? I think he felt the plays spoke for themselves and that if actors just took a deep breath and just read the plays and didn't worry too much about what style they were doing it in, that the play would triumph and that the play would take them over. He said, you know, this is, let's just do the play. (laughs) And and this is modern American Shakespeare theater. Yeah, yeah. Well, Pap moved to the East River Park Amphitheater from the church in 1956. Tell us about that. Um, had he wanted to perform Shakespeare outdoors? Was that why they moved? Or w- was this a vision that he worked towards? Or, or did he just stumble on, on this great space there? I think it's the latter. I mean, again, Joe was a big walker. He talks about how he liked to walk around the city. He grew up in the Lower East Side. And uh, so he was always walking around. And he kind of stumbles on this place, which I think was built. I think it's a WPA project uh, dating from the 30s. I think it was uh, it was near these big projects, the ladies' garment ILGWU, the Ladies' Garment Workers' Union projects. And it was there. And he, again, as with the church, he just saw the space and he said, you know, I can put on a play here. Well, everyone that you talk to about that era talks about what a dangerous neighborhood yeah. it, it was then. I mean, I lived there in the in the 80s and it was dangerous then. It sounds like it was what, as you say, was hard up against these housing projects. Yeah, yeah. No, it was, you know, there were gangs and it was a tough neighborhood. And, you know, always when new people show up in a neighborhood, you know, there's always friction. You know, who are these people? Who are these outsiders? No one is happy to see people coming from the outside. But, you know, Joe, who grew up in neighborhoods like this, I mean, it was like he was confronting himself. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. He, yeah, he, he felt at home there. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he, you know, he just kind of nipped this stuff in the bud and he said, look, you know, he, they saw that he was as tough as they were. And they kind of was a, a kind of initially he was just a truce. But I think as they started watching, some of the kids got involved. They started to help out. They started to see the hard work involved and they were good with it. And Roscoe Lee Brown has this wonderful story in the book about gang members coming to see Romeo and Juliet yeah. and, and just how involved they got in the performance. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it reminded me hearing this, it reminded me of like, uh, you know, the old Yiddish theater when people would, you know, would yell out at the stage, you know. Right, you right. Know. or Shakespeare's yeah, time when people know. would yell out at the Lear, don't do it, you know, it was like that. <laughs> you know, so I mean, it really, I think it, it, it did Joe's heart good to see how people in the neighborhood would respond to the plays. Right. I think in the, in the story he tells is it's Romeo and Juliet. And they're like, don't do it, Romeo. Don't do it. <laughs> she know. ain't dead. I know. I know. It was, uh, I mean, people were responding to the plays as Joe always felt they would. So they were in the East River Amphitheater and uh, somewhere in that period before they moved to Central Park, um, Pap uh, twisted the arm of a of a Times critic, Arthur Gelb, yeah, who we were talking yeah. about earlier, and he got him to show up to see a, sh- a show. And the critic, uh, Arthur Gelb, shows up. He's, he sees this first act of, of um, Taming the Shrew and loves it. But then it began to rain. Yeah. You know, even from the beginning, the, the storm clouds were there. I mean, the rain wasn't a surprise, but, you know, people were there. So the play went on and it started to just pour rain. And people, and you know, it had been hard to get Arthur Gelb down there. Joe had had a kind of camp out of the New York Times offices and uh, said, you know, like, I really, I want you to see the play. I want you to see the play. And finally, nothing else was going on. And Gelb agreed to come down. And he says, you know, it's pouring rain. And he was so excited by what he'd seen that in the middle of the rainstorm, he just goes on stage when the play is finally canceled. And he says to Joe, Joe, this is really great. I want to come back and see a whole production and give it a full scale review. And Joe said, this is it. We're out of money. You know, this is we, we can't do it anymore unless we get more money. Uh, so was that true? Were they out of money? Or was that was he saying that to get him to? As far as I know, to... it's true. Anna, as ah. far as I know, it was true. Uh-huh. No, no, I've never heard that it was kind of a... A, a play. It wasn't uh-huh. a play. They really were out of money. I mean, they really lived hand to mouth. I mean, this was not like they had, you know, wealthy parents that they could tap. So Arthur Gelb, you know, wrote this notice. I think he said the headline on it was rained out about how impressed he'd been by what he'd seen, but he hadn't seen the whole thing. And then he said, you know, unfortunately, there's never going to be, unless $750 is raised, there's not going to be any more performances. And, you know, the New York Times has a kind of power. It reaches people. Newspapers do that. And uh, the producer of My Fair Lady, who'd grown up on the Lower East Side, called Arthur Gelb and said, I'm going to write them a check. Where do I send it? You know, so a and lot that's of, saved. That saved the, you know, the it day. saved the troop. You know, a lot of fortuitous things happened for Joe. I mean, again, you know, they say, you know, it's like fortune favors the prepared. Joe was on top of things. And when, uh, you know, something good happened, he could capitalize on it. So moving on, after their troop was saved in the East River Amphitheater, uh, eventually they got to Central Park. Why don't we charge admission? This is considered important to the, to the life of the city, the educational life. I felt even a quarter would be too much. And the first time that they ever performed there, uh, as the story goes anyway, Pap snuck into the park and the deputy mayor had lent him a, a City of New York sanitation truck, like a, like a platform trailer truck that he used to haul a, a wooden folding stage that ended up being the first Shakespeare in the Park State. Yeah, I mean, Joe had started... I think initially Central Park was just another neighborhood for Joe. The New York Shakespeare Festival Mobile Theater will present a Midsummer Night's Dream. 
Joe had had this truck, and they had gone around to the five boroughs, to parks, to different spaces, and put on Shakespeare. Oh, so been, he was kind of circling the, the yeah, New York with it was these a traveling troop. Yeah, it was a traveling Shakespeare troop. Then he ended up in Central Park. I don't know that this was a goal of his. Well, we have to talk about some of the wild things that happened yeah. on on stage during Shakespeare in the Park. And one of your sources in the book talks about the night that Juliet's dress caught fire. What happened there? Yeah, no, this is an actress named uh, Briarly Lee. It would not for the world they saw thee here. By whose direction foundst thou out this place? By love, who first did promise She was inquire. tend to be a very everyone says a very intense actress, very into her parts. Thou knowest the mask of night is on my face. And uh, a torch fell off and it caught the tail end of her dress, the trail of her dress, and it was starting to catch fire. And the only person who, this was during the death scene. So Romeo's lying there dead. Romeo's lying there dead and he's also unfortunately the only person who's actually seeing that this is happening. The angle is such that no one else is seeing it. And the story is that you know, he finally said, well, I have to do something, you know, and she was so into the part that she had no idea this was going on. So he, you know, leaps up and puts out the fire and then goes back to being dead. You know? <laughs> That's so, I wish I had seen some I of these know. things. Christopher Walken talks about these terrific moments that you'd be in the middle of a soliloquy and a dog would walk across the stage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just... Uh, there's something very vivid, something very real about the uh, the experience. And actors speak with, you know, it was always kind of a lot of logistical problems and things that had to be overcome. But everyone thinks of it with great fondness. I love it. I love when they boo and hiss like that. I love it when they boo and hiss Petruchio because that means that Petruchio is making them feel something. The feeling in the park is that you're playing with and for your family. You are putting on a play for these 2,000 relatives that came to see you. And here I am putting on a play for you. And okay, you dig it, you don't dig it, we'll argue. If you want to argue, we'll argue, fine. If you want to boo me, great. And I might boo you back. But it's all done within a context of love. Well, around this time, Pap was called before the House on American Activities Committee. So why was McCarthy after Joe Pap this director of Shakespeare in the Park. Well, he worked for CBS, and uh, the feeling of the un-American activities people was that the media was being infiltrated by communists. And uh, it, it was, you know, again, one of these things, I mean, Joe was called to testify. He refused to testify. And he told me that it was a major headline in, in New York newspapers. And again, it's one of these things that you think, well, I mean, how could something like this be a big headline? But I actually went and found the paper, and it was the banner headline of one of the afternoon papers. Either uh, the World Telegram and Sun or the Journal American was this huge headline about CBS, stage manager takes the fifth. And uh, it was very, very serious times for Joe. Yeah, how worried was he about it? He was terribly worried. Again, there was every reason to be terribly worried. I mean, a lot of people had lost their jobs. Uh, People had gone to Europe because they couldn't find work in the United States. People had gone to prison. We now know that it had a quote-unquote happy ending. But, I mean, at the time, there was no telling what would happen. And Joe really thought that this would be the end of Shakespeare and in the park and all his plans. And, you know, really, really, really uh, fearful about the future. And also Robert Moses kind of jumped on this Red Scare 
bandwagon in a way. Robert Moses, he was the first New York City Parks Commissioner at the time, and, and he's also the man known as the master builder of mid-20th century New York City and its boroughs. And he was controversial for favoring the highways over public transit and practically helped give rise to suburbs like, like Long Island. So the master builder of New York, he builder of Lincoln Center and the UN building and the Triborough Bridge, that Robert Moses came out against Joe Papp when Papp was trying to build a permanent home for Shakespeare in Central Park. So what what was his beef with him? It wasn't even there. He, at that point, he wasn't really trying to build a permanent home. He just was, you know, wanting to perform there. And uh, Robert Moses, for reasons that are unclear, really was upset that Joe didn't want to charge admission. I had lunch with uh, Commissioner Moses, and we discussed, among other things, the question of the free Shakespeare in Central Park. And Mr. Moses informed me that he has had uh, difficulty over the past few years in the controlling of the, the, the people there, the lack of chairs, sanitary facilities, and so forth. And wasn't, and there was also an unsigned letter being circulated about Pap that he was a communist, and that kind of hung together with his reputation, his political reputation, and also his this vision that he had to bring uh, to to offer Shakespeare for free. That rang of communism. Yeah, I'm not sure it was so much that for for Moses. He had a deputy, a man named Stuart Constable, who was the Red Scare person, and he was the person who felt the attack dog. Yeah, Uh. and he felt that he's a person who felt that uh, you know that Joe was a communist and that this was a bad thing. But he did feel that Joe should charge, and Joe refused to charge, and this became a, a huge thing. It led to a lawsuit. And finally, much to everyone's surprise, especially Joe Papp's surprise, because, you know, Robert Moses was like the most powerful man in New York. And as Joe said, you know, it wasn't like Joe felt, well, I can handle this guy. Joe did not feel this at all. He was just driven by his principles, driven by his beliefs. And he said, I have to have it this way, come what may. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and he ended up being able to offer free Shakespeare yeah. in the park. Yeah. Yeah. And it ended up being a permanent yeah. place. Even though, as you say, I, I really, I misspoke before. Yes. He wasn't out to to found a permanent theater. No. In fact, you wrote that he, he thought that having a permanent space in Central Park would, would force him to jump through all kinds of hoops for whomever the park commissioner is. Exactly. This was not something he was looking forward to. But again, as with everything we've been talking about, Joe recognized opportunity. I want to move on now and talk about the public theater, and uh, that's so many uh, amazing productions and, and things happened there, but the, these early years especially were wild. So Pap formed the public theater at Astor Place in Lower Manhattan in 1966, and then the next year they produced Hamlet with another young actor that Pap had discovered, Martin Sheen. And he was nobody, it sounds like, at the time, right? He was working at a car wash to make ends meet. Yeah, no, and uh, he tells, uh, Martin Sheen tells a great story about how he's coming into the car wash, and at one point, one of the managers says, do you ever do any acting? And he said, yeah, why? He says, well, someone's been calling, asking for Martin Sheen. And he had been working under his real name, which was uh, Estevez, you know, Manuel Estevez. He'd not given his, his acting name because he was embarrassed, right? To... Well, he hadn't given his real name. You know, I mean, he'd just taken a stage name, but he never thought that his stage name would ever come into play at the car wash, you know. <laughs> but Joe had tracked him down at the car wash and had asked for him, and the car wash guys had no idea who he was. <laughs> so among other controversies about this Hamlet production, 
which has goes by m- many names, the Naked Hamlet, the Hamlet Happening, I yeah. think is one of them. Um, Martin Sheen decided to do Hamlet with a Puerto Rican accent. To be or not to be, that is the question. What are you, no ruin the mind to suffer these things. Very funny, the audience was hysterical. But then when I got into things later on in the speech where I talked about who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressors wrong, the proud man's continue. There's an added dimension part. then, of course. Totally, yes. sir, because who were the doormen? Yes. In New York, right. who was washing the dishes? Who was right. cleaning the garbage? Who's taking? Out but why did why did Pap cast this young Martin Sheen? What did he see in him? Because he, Sheen says, "I didn't know I didn't know Hamlet. I didn't know Shakespeare from anything. I didn't know how the play ended." Well, I think Joe, the the one of the the kind of the ideas of the Naked Hamlet was to take the play apart to kind of blow it up and see what you could do with the pieces as they kind of came raining down. And I think he liked the idea of someone who had no preconceptions about the play. He didn't want anyone to come in who had who had all these ideas, who'd done Hamlet a million times and had his own ideas about how you know it should be and who might be offended by this blowing up of the play. Some people liked it, some people didn't like it, but you know, Joe liked to experiment. Joe would get these ideas and he would follow through. And it really does show just how thoroughly he was willing to wreak havoc on Shakespeare. He did it out of love. He, But he just get these ideas and he would think, well, let's see what happens if we take it to these extremes. You know, it was done out of real love for the material and uh, passion for the material. Well, Pap produced so many Shakespeare plays, but he also put on so many other plays as well. So in the end, after all the people that you talked with and the conversations that you had with him and about his vision for Shakespeare and theater in America, how do you see his contribution to American Shakespeare theater? What's his legacy? Well, I, in some ways, he helped really put it on the map with Shakespeare in the Park and with the American way of doing Shakespeare and with getting all these great actors to do it, he just made it a major... People wanted to do Shakespeare in the Park. You know, he made it part of the world of America's top actors. He made it something they wanted to do. And uh, I think that's been of enormous value. So many people, I mean, who maybe like George C. Scott, who knows if they ever would have done Shakespeare except for Joe. This was uh, something wonderful. Well, it's just been such a pleasure to talk with you. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. No, this has been a real treat. It's always a pleasure to talk about Joe. He did so much. You know, he just did so much. Kenneth Turan was film critic for the Los Angeles Times and National Public Radio's Morning Edition. His oral history of Joe Papp and his creation of the New York Shakespeare Festival and Public Theater is called Free for All, Joe Papp, The Public and the Greatest Theater Story Ever Told. It was published by Anchor Books, a division of Random House, in 2009. He was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, This Green Plot Shall Be Our Stage, was produced under the supervision of Garland Scott and is presented with permission of R.L. Paul Productions, LLC, which created it for the Fulcher. It was edited by Gail Kernpaster and Esther Farrington. Ben Lauer is our web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Lauren Cassio and Nick Buzone at Formosa Commercials Recording Studio in Santa Monica, California. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. 
You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore. Whitmore.